From the grassroots media team at Weave News, this is Interweave It. Welcome to episode number two of Interweaving. I'm John Collins. Today, Shanice Arlo speaks with Sean Jacobs, a scholar and media activist who recently gave the annual CLR James Lecture at St. Lawrence University. They touched on U.S. media representations of Africa, the current state of politics on the continent, and much more. Okay, so I'm here with this year's annual CLR James speaker for 2019, Dr. Sean Jacobs, who's the founder and editor of the blog Africa's Country. Welcome to Interweaving. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. I have a few questions. So we wanted to be a little bit more conversational. First, I want to ask you what inspired the blog Africa as a Country? I mean, it dates back to like the period in which people were starting to do weblogs at the beginning of the 2000s, which sounds like a thousand years ago. And a lot of people were make, you know, you'd, you'd make like a personal website where you would share uh, music. If you view, I like that song, or uh, there was an article in the newspaper about something. So it was that kind of thing where people were just sharing interesting content. It was almost like curating. And this is pre-Twitter and Facebook. So the kind of thing that Facebook and Twitter is doing now with people just sharing things, that was really the function of weblogs. Sometimes you would write in a very kind of personal way about, you know, I don't know, an experience you did, you traveled, somebody you met, you went to a talk, you learned something from it. So that's the, the environment in which I created it. In terms of like what inspired it, I had come here, I would moved to the U.S. in 2001, I'd gotten a fellowship at the New School, actually as a graduate student, I was a student at the University of London, and I got a graduate fellowship and 9-11 had happened. In most instances, when, when journalists, American journalists, um, you know, whether it was on the radio, whether it was especially on television, sometimes in print, because print journalism doesn't really cover Africa. They do it like now and then, like maybe like once every week or two weeks. When they did, they covered it only in terms of like American foreign policy considerations, like what does this mean for us? And generally it was about the war on terror. And I was kind of like, no, there's a lot more happening there. And I was like, I happen to be an African immigrant in New York City, you know, from South Africa. And I'm also a former journalist. I had worked in doing media work for a think tank in Cape Town. So I was familiar with how the media worked. Mm-hmm. I also studied the media. My PhD is about government policymaking in South Africa and the kind of the role of media in that whole process or processes. And so with that background, I felt I was in the right place to try to make people understand particularly Americans, like what they were being told and taught about Africa. When I started out, it wasn't called Africa as a country. It had another obscure name, which I can talk about. My initial idea was just to be this person who's showing you things about Africa that you didn't know. That Naive level is like, hey, we're kind of like you. Mm-hmm. We're almost like you are. But more than that, it was like, what's happening to you is happening to us. It might be happening differently. The conditions might be slightly different. But some of the same processes are taking okay. place, yeah. I would actually like for you to speak about the obscure name because Africa as a country seems a little, you know, ironic because as an African, I have to constantly tell people that there is more to Africa. It's not just safaris and one homogenous thing. Um, so if you can talk a little bit about the name and what it was before and why maybe it So changed. the first website, Google used to have this thing called Blogger. Um, you know, like when you, you're just on the internet and you're sort of messing around, like, I mean, actually in the mid-90s when I was a student in Chicago, 
and the internet was becoming a thing. My friends and I, we made like websites. I think I remember I made a tribute website to, to Bob Marley. Like you could find stuff, you know, whatever was on the internet. I made it into this like two pages. And then I also made one on Govan Mbeki, who's a South African resistance figure. He's the, he's the father of, of Tabo Mbeki, who later being president. He was sort of one of my heroes. So I made a Govan Mbeki page and a Bob Marley page. In a way, I was kind of like foreshadowing what was coming or kind of imagining what I was going to do later. But the first website where I consistently started writing on the internet uh, was in 2005, and I called it um, Leo Africanus. Now, I'll explain quickly what that, who he was. He was a Moroccan diplomat from like the 16th century who had, his uncle was also a diplomat. He was actually born in Spain. And with his uncle, he traveled in North Africa. And when he got older, at some point he was abducted by, some, by pirates. These pirates were under the protection of the Pope. There's a point to all of this. He ends up in Rome. His real name is Hassan Wazan. I'm sort of jumping around. So he gets to Rome. And he works for the Pope, and he t he's given this name, Leo Africanus. And while he's in Rome, he writes a book called The Description of Africa, which at that time was like one of the only ways that Europeans are learning something about Africa. And in this book, it contained like sort of good descriptions of his own travels in, in the region, North Africa, sort of like including into the Sahel. Um, and there's also embellishment. Uh, he's responding to criticisms. And so I was kind of imagining myself as this figure, that I was sort of like this, the Africanus. Of course, as I've always said, he's this diplomat. He's from a very sort of privileged background. I'm from Cape Town. My parents are like working class. My father was like a gardener. My mother was a domestic worker. So I'm not exactly the same person. I also come from a different kind of political culture in South Africa, very radical. So the combination of intervening in the public sphere and being from, you know, Southern Africa and having exposure to how people in the West talks about Africa and then responding to it. That was the original idea. So there is still, if you go on the internet, there is a site that archives the WordPress version of it from 2007 up until 2009 when it was called Leo Africanus. You will see the website on there. There's an image on the front, actually, of a DJ from Botswana, Chidi, and at the top, the sort of the top image, and a South African accordion player, Tony Sedras, who played with Yuma Sekela, mm -hmm. and also with Paul Simon. Um, so that, that lasted until 2009, which is, I sort of have an epiphany. I always, I don't always have the correct origin story, but th I think there are many theories for it. I have sort of my many theories. It's like, when did I decide to call it Africa as a country? It just happened. But I think there, are, I could trace it to at least like three or four theories. I don't know why. I have theories rather than one story. But I think the one was, I used to have a habit of saying if I was kind of like, this is just ridiculous what this person is writing in this newspaper or on this TV show about Africa, you know, this or this American or this European. And I would always at the end of the article sort of incredulously say, and Africa is a country. You know, this is your bad journalism. Yeah, and Africa is a country, yeah. right? Yeah, oh, I see. I, I was see. sort of like messing with that. Yeah. The other one was it also... I think I was kind of doing that already on the site. Then in the 2008 election, uh, John McCain announced that Sarah Palin was his running mate. And there's an interview where Sarah Palin gets interviewed by a Fox journalist and talks about uh, foreign policy. And she uses that in fame, you know, the sort of phrase that, have, that all these people use in the country of Africa. Mm. So it's a combination of like this kind of my sort of mocking uh, style, Sarah Palin saying that, and then also people implying that it's a country. That's kind of like it's a savanna, it's a game park, it's the Lion King, 
you know what I'm saying, like it's Wakanda now, but there was no Wakanda then, but like yeah. the combination of all that made me want to call the site Africa as a country. And so what was initially like a mocking, just making fun of things and kind of being ironic, like it was, it was the deliberately ironic point to this. Later just, I was like, okay, the name is sticking. I'm getting lots of hits. Mm. It's kind of a brand now. So I'm not going to throw it away. I actually, I got an email last week again from some random person saying, why do you call it that? Or then I say, go look at the about page or read this interview that I did with somebody or listen to this. But um, in general, I'm just sort of like, it is what it is now. And as I always as well, as, you know, one, I think one of the people who worked on it used to say, look, what we're trying to create is also kind of a country online, this country of people that produce the site. So in a way, symbolically, we're also trying to create a country. But I think less about that. I think it was just the name stuck. It's there now. <laughs> and I'm not going to change it now. It is what yeah, it is. It is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember the first time I saw it. I think I might have followed it on Facebook because I read an interesting article. I don't remember exactly what article it was. But I was like, I like this. I'm going to follow it now. But interviewing you, I was like, it's probably something to do with it being like ironic, but also the end of like thinking that Africa is a country, but as a type. Yeah, and of um, course, it, you know, it starts out like that. And then it goes through like a number of transformations where initially it attacks that notion that Africa is a country. And it, so it's, it's a lot of media analysis. And then over time, because it, the space is there and to, you can do that kind of media criticism on Twitter, you can do it on Facebook if you want. You can now can make short videos on YouTube. So that means the site also has to change what it was about. So now it became a space in which people just produce um, opinion and analysis rather than being this kind of place that's always kind of reacting against things that people write. Yeah. So you said that you started with this whole thing because of how Africa was being presented in terms of how that affects America. So I think what I want to ask is, has the representations of Africa sort of changed in your years of working with it? I just came to the States a few years ago and there's still these stereotypes of what Africa is, like the same things are still being perpetuated. So, but in your opinion, has it changed? It's changed. It stayed the same to some extent, but it's also changed. So it's like a mixed bag. It's like glass half full or glass half empty, depending on how you see it. So if you're saying like, I don't know which one is the bad one, but if you're thinking negatively, there was a study that was done by, I think it's the University of Southern California, has a center called the Norman Lear Center. And they did a study in 2018 that actually shows you that cumulatively the kind of images that people have of Africa from the 1950s persist into the present. And that's because of the way American television works or the internet works. So you can watch reruns of something. Even if it's outdated and problematic, you, know, you could still watch I Love Lucy on like TV land or whatever. So, uh, or you watch like a cop series from the 60s again, like, you know, like the, the way that nostalgia works and reruns. Mm -hmm. Over time, they basically said like the, a lot of these stereotypes just get reproduced. And so people might realize there's something wrong about this, but then they see it again, like Tarzan or, or a movie from the 1950s that's on one of those kind of classic movie channels but you're not thinking it's problematic, you're just sort of watching it. So in that way, some of that has returned. Secondly, through the news where you still have, particularly on television mostly, like I think print has gotten way better, but on TV news in the US, they'll report on a place where they have a political interest. Right now it's the Middle East, so they don't report on Africa. If they do report on Africa, it's only because there's something extraordinary happening there, which is a crisis, Ebola, uh, Boko Haram. Basically the problem there is like, 
If they had reported on Africa more than like, say, once every two weeks, they could have reported on Africa in a more nuanced way. Mm -hmm. And they actually, they have reporters who sometimes would like to do that kind of reporting. There is generally a decline in reporting about the rest of the world. There's even a decline in reporting about another city. It's very local, like journalism. So to report about some strange place where people speak another language, it's just another bridge too far, right? So there's one like cumulative effect of what we see on entertainment media. Then there's the stuff that we see on television that makes it kind of terrible. At the same time, I think there's definitely been improvements in particularly kind of long form journalism, print journalism, a lot of the sort of old egregious things like Nicholas Kristof when he used to report on Africa, uh, some of the really bad stuff you see in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. You don't see that anymore. They have better reporters who are mindful, I would like to argue that Africa's country had something to do with that. Because in some instances, and I've privately heard from the reporters, that they are like, okay, I better do this right because I don't want to run into that Africa's a country crowd. So there's a way in which we've contributed to making better journalism happen. And that might also be why we don't do that kind of criticism anymore. Because we feel like the journalism has gotten relatively better. Thirdly, I also think this is actually quite important. Or maybe I'm on a fourthly now. The, the democratization of the internet, of the means with which people can produce media, has actually also made it better. And it also made like the job of something like Africa's country, that old job it had of media criticism, it made that obsolete because, as I said earlier, you can just take your phone, go like this and say, this is what I feel about that New York Times article. You don't need lots of money to pull this off anymore. You put it on Instagram. You can make a five-minute video for YouTube. You and your friend can sit in your room and do a quick live Facebook critiquing a piece of media. And sometimes, given how the internet works, your critique of something may get as many hits if it goes viral as that original thing that you're criticizing. It's not going to happen all the time because those are still powerful media organizations. They understand how the internet works, etc. and so on. But I think a lot has changed. There's definitely been improvements in the journalism about Africa. There's more outlets. Mm -hmm. There's more funding by nonprofit organizations interested in good journalism who will fund people to go and do that kind of writing, you know, that kind of good writing. So, yes, there's the cumulative stuff that keeps repeating itself. There's a neglect of not writing, not telling Americans that that's like a place. There's real people there doing real things. And when there's electoral violence in Kenya, it means there was like four other years in which Kenyans were just trying to do basic things. Mm. Go to the park, try to eat, get the kids to school. You know what I'm saying? Like struggle for health care, keep their governments accountable, dream of a different kind of future. But we're not going to see that. All we're seeing is like Kenya, that place of electoral violence. But now what's interesting is Kenya can talk back. Recently there was a, a bomb that went off in downtown Nairobi. And you had this hashtag called Kenyans on Twitter, KOT. And the New York Times had published these photographs of victims of the bombing. And those people just use Twitter, use their hashtag. If you follow that thread, you'll see how they like go toe to toe with the Times. The Times have to explain itself. Mm -hmm. Like, why is it reporting in this way? That, I think, has changed the way the game works. And that also meant that our job changed. And for me, that's a good thing. I would like to wake up one day and be like, there's no need for me anymore. Yeah. yeah. I followed that thread. I'm the president of the African Student Union. So we kind of had a conversation about black bodies and black death and romanticizing all of that and how do we feel about them publishing the pictures and there was, was a lot of conversation that we had about that first it was oh but the pictures were leaked by a Kenyan so it's like back and forth but thank you for talking about that so just for people who might want to hear about what your talk was about could you potentially give a 
quick overview of your lecture last night. In the CLR James lecture, what I was trying to do was, and I'll be quick, was to say that generally politics in Africa right now, politics of political power is quite stale, that it's unimaginative in general, because we have the sort of regular organs, the people who fight about politics, like political parties, politicians. There seems to be like a dearth of ideas. There's like nothing interesting. They just reinforce austerity programs. You know, people call neoliberalism, they, they implement neoliberal policies, they cut public services, they follow like the prescriptions from the West. There's nothing original. Most governments repress people when they insisting on their democratic right to express themselves. The public representatives don't keep the state accountable. You have presidents who feel it's their right to be in power forever. They don't want to step down. They invent all kinds of new ways. They change the constitution. Uh, of course, they're enabled by parliamentarians. The political arena is the place where they get wealthy, so they need to retain power. And so with that sort of throwing up our hands, I was trying to like think, well, could there be something else for us? What else is there? In the, in the talk, I was trying to take inspiration from what I think is happening here. I think if we look at North America, a lot of people would agree that some of the most interesting and exciting possibilities for a different kind of politics, which is not the politics of the two dominant parties, as they are currently constituted, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, but something that actually believes in, in the ideas of a public good, an investment in public services, in education, health, actually talking about the way that racism is sort of embedded in American society. And it turns out that it's this rumpled old man from uh, Vermont, Bernie Sanders. It's a young congresswoman from like Queens in New uh, the Bronx, sorry, not Queens, she's gonna be mad if I say Queens, <laughs> Bronx in New York, um, Ocasio-Cortez. Borough Wars. Those people are like doing that kind of thinking. And I was trying to, in the talk, say, here's what they are offering people. And I took advantage of sort of like telling people in their words, what are they arguing for? And I was suggesting that there are Africans who are taking notice of this. There's not a lot of them yet, but even if it's frivolous and they're saying something like, if Bernie Sanders was running in Nigeria, I'd vote for him because of the kind of choices that they were given in last election uh, in the middle of February, they were like, I want something else. And at the end of the lecture, I was suggesting that it may not be the case. Africans may not be sitting around watching like what Americans are doing. They have a long history of imagining other kinds of political futures, like in Burkina Faso uh, with Thomas Sankara. And in fact, many of the nationalist movements that have become stale, they did a lot of this kind of thinking before. Trade unions, even movements that are related to religion, have thought about it. And then by the end of it, I was just suggesting that you've seen this in, uh, in Burkina Faso. I think it's been very interesting particularly in South Africa, where in 2015, 2016, young students who were critiquing or criticizing like the kind of public display of monuments and saying, we were not changing these colonial symbols. And then they connected that to the way that the universities were outsourcing or privatizing those workers that are performing like basic services on campus. And the fact that it had become really expensive to go to university in South Africa. Only 1%, I think, of, of South Africans actually go to a university, and that's quite low. So they started agitating for free public education. I mean, in the end, the movement ran into its own kind of problems, like they didn't sustain the movement. But I was just sort of suggesting like, look, here's something interesting um, happening here, and it might be useful for us to begin to think like, where can a new politics come from here? You're listening to Interweaving, a podcast of conversation and context from Weave News. Contributions from readers and listeners play a central role in helping us continue and expand our grassroots media-making efforts. 
If you'd like to support our work, just visit weavenews.org slash donate. Now back to the show. You talked about these like sort of problems yesterday too, um, where you said that an opportunity was lost. But can you talk a little bit more about these problems? Because I'm a young person and I like to get involved. So I just wanted to know a little bit more about these, like I, where it might have fallen flat. I think what I meant was, so for people who don't know South Africa, essentially it was two decades after the end of apartheid. You had a generation of people who their only memories growing up is that the ANC was in power. They're not like me, I'm you know, I'm like an old man. So like for me, I grew up under apartheid. I grew up under apartheid in the 1970s and the 1980s. That's not what happened. I was a kid, right? I went to elementary and high school um, in, the, in the 1980s. So when I take a view of South Africa, I have that long view that there was a lived reality for me of this kind of racist white supremacy that did some bad things. And then the end of apartheid brings the ANC comes to power. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm entering my 20s and I'm like, this is going to be a great world. Once the disappointment comes, I can still sort of like have a long view, right? For these young people, the ANC is the only one that was in power. And so they question like, well, I also can sort of imagine like how difficult it was to make that transition, like what that you had to appease the whites. Like I take, again, I'm not saying that I'm making excuses for that, Mm -hmm. but I have this sort of longer view. They do too. But their lived reality is this one in which the ANC governed. And they're mad at the ANC that 20 years after independence, there are all these colonial symbols all over the place that their parents, because a lot of them are first generation people entering the university, and there's now a lot of them in the university because the ANC, as the government, had helped make that possible. But that's not gelling with how their parents live. Uh, they have to go home during the vacation and they go see what life is like in the township. and so. They make a connection at that point between the symbols on the campuses and how the university is privatizing itself, making it impossible for them to be a student. They also make a connection to this idea that, like, what if we don't pay for university and the country can afford it? We have public universities. The problem, I feel, was when they were sort of thinking about, like, who are they and where they come from, they often downplayed the fact that there is a long history of resisting in South Africa. And they should have made connections with all those people and make, you know, workers, poor people, and make these poor people understand that what they're fighting for on campuses were connected to those people. So, for example, like, they rejected Nelson Mandela. They rejected the ANC, which is, you know, that happens. But in the process, they rejected that whole history, which I think was interesting. They also, I think, got too caught up in debates that were happening here. That was debates about black people as a minority in a majority white society, because they had adopted this rhetoric of white supremacy, mm-hmm. which I understand because they were on these white campuses, these elite white campuses in South Africa, in which being black, you are marginal. I went to one of those. You are a marginal person on those campuses. Mm-hmm. But they had forgotten that they lived in a black majority country, mm-hmm. that their government was black, and that if they wanted to, they could change the society. They created this impression almost like white people are everywhere. They make it impossible for us to change the place. You defeated apartheid. Like, it's not Donald Trump governing the country. It's actually a government that was elected democratically, that's favored by the majority of the people. And that government claims that it is rhetorically committed to transforming the society. So figure out how to force that government to do what it said it's going to do. And so after a while, and I'll, I'll sort of stop after this, I think they got so caught up in sort of the language of American politics that they forgot that they were kind of in, not that they were in charge, but that they were close to those people who were in charge, and they could change the place. And also, finally, that the ANC 
this was the first group of people that the ANC claimed the ANC had made it possible for them to enjoy all these privileges of the new South Africa. Now they turned on the ANC. They should have used that power better. Instead, by the end, it degenerated into people fighting one another over small things, over small ideological differences, rather than seeing this, this kind of picture. bigger picture of what they could achieve to make a different kind of South Africa. I think this part is going to get me in trouble, but okay. I'm, I'm in the States, so thinking about white supremacy, that's like in the foreground of my head. What I was thinking in your talk yesterday was, yes, it's a majority black country, South Africa, and the ANC is a black government, but the legacy of white supremacy, though. No, it's deep, it's like, deep. And then also black people can, you know, perpetuate these ideals. They can do it too. Does that then factor into the fact that maybe that's why they were adopting this discourse? Because they realized that even though on the ground, this is the reality, black majority country, black majority government, but there are these other, like the hidden... No, no, it's true. Paths. The ANC, the, the problem with the ANC, is, I say this over and over again, it's not original, but I always say like the ANC, I think the ANC also doesn't really care for poor people. They don't care for poor black people because it's 20 years after the end of apartheid and people are still living in squatter camps. The fact that that doesn't make them deal with the question of housing or they keep building housing that looks like, I mean, nobody can live in that. Like nobody can make a proper life in that. So it's like, it looks like the ANC treats black people in the same way that white people have treated them. So yes, there is a way in which the ANC perpetuate ways of white supremacy. And I think it was Rosa Williams who said yesterday after the event, there's also a way in which we can't discount like how the former elite universities in South Africa, even if the majority of the students at Rhodes, UCT, University of Cape Town, Fitz University, and university, what's now called the University of KwaZulu-Natal, which is actually a combination of a former white university and a black university. We can't discount how those universities act to reproduce whiteness. Like, we can't. I mean, I went to the University of Cape Town. Black people are majority in the country. But on those campuses, you know that white people are in charge. So the fact that people went and said, let me throw down the statue, was that's a great achievement. I'm totally for that. I'm just interested, like, they could have taken that energy and connected that to the way that capitalism was working in South Africa, mm -hmm. neoliberalism was working in South Africa, how people were being disenfranchised, how it is the ANC who employs the police to kill protesters at a mine in Marikana. It's not white people. It's a combination of the ANC, mining capital, mm -hmm. da, da 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 But sometimes I feel like when we reduce it to white supremacy, we act like we are not agents in this thing. Yeah. We've been in charge for 20 years. <laughs> To act like we have no power and that whites have all this power, mm -hmm. maybe here in the U.S., I think if you go to South Africa, there are certain spaces, that, well, there's a couple of spaces, particularly like the former white suburbs, certain kind of commercial districts, privatized malls, yeah, that where black security guard is like following you around and, you know, making you feel uneasy. Mm -hmm. But in general, in most institutions in South Africa, grudgingly, whites have accepted that this is another country now. For better or worse, I'm not saying they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They're just realizing, hey, I gotta like, these, I gotta survive around here. And even cynically, if I'm gonna survive here, I better create a black empowerment company, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I sometimes feel like we give up too easily and act like they're everywhere and they're mm -hmm. telling us how to be. I mean, you can tell them, hey, this has to stop. And in South Africa, that happens a lot. Like if a white farmer suits like a black, farm worker on like a farm just because they walk through the orchard or whatever and then there's a court case there are movements like the EFF of Malema does that they turn up at the court and they protest they make sure that they help shame that person so after a while something that was common 
of just shooting black workers for no reason of not paying them. Some of that stuff, you can't do that anymore. And I'm just like, why are we not being creative about that? Why do we act right. like it's the, like they in charge? And what I meant by like the politics became one of like, who is the pure? Who's the pure one? Who's the right one? So we forgot like who were we fighting against? It became more about like who's right? Who is the most right? Who is the most virtuous? That actually became what the student politics became about. Yeah. So this is kind of like from my personal research. See, in the American context, I am a black girl. But back home, I'm colored, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, no black person would accept me as black. You, if you walk into the airport, the this. person taking your passport is already going like... Yeah, like you, and they probably they, start speaking Afrikaans to me, which yeah, I do speak, yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about mm -hmm. the relationship between colored people and black people, because the research I'm doing at home was about the legacy of colonialism mm -hmm. and how and apartheid and how that still influences relations between colored people and black people in my country specifically, which doesn't have a lot of writing on it. So I just wanted your input on that relationship in South Africa. So I think it would be useful to research for your own sake, like the construction of colored identity. Which I'm in the process yeah. of doing that now. In, both in South Africa, maybe, and in Namibia. There's interesting work on the construction of colored identity in Zimbabwe. Malawi, there's, yeah, from yeah. South Africa. And there's not a lot in yeah. my country because yeah. it's such a small population. But I also sometimes think some of the work can also romanticize some of these identities and kind of use uh, terminology from the U.S. to write about it in a particular kind of way. I would insist that what people must do is do history. If you do history, then you'll notice like sort of like how these identities come about, how they become like real, if you want, because they are real. They are constructed, but they're also real because that's how people organize themselves. That's how they live. So I would recommend how the identity becomes constructed, how people begin to like use it like in political organization. For example, by the end of the 19th century, at the beginning of the 20th century, before the ANC is found in 1913, right, in Bloemfontein, I think in 1902 or something, there's something founded in Cape Town called the African People's Organization, the APO which is colored people. It's just a bunch of colleges who are thinking like, what does it mean to be a citizen? Like, if we're gonna become citizens here, what does that mean? And they are fighting, of course, basically for colored men, right? Mm -hmm. But the fact that they identify themselves explicitly as Africans, that's, right. okay. that's very interesting. Later on, there's another group of people who are essentially, they are either migrants from the Caribbean, who came to work in Cape Town and what they call the docks, you know, the, the, the harbor, they also become very central to like the colored identity project. Again, so you have a collection of ideas of like colorism and stuff from the Caribbean. You have elite Cape Town people who try to be upwardly mobile. So they think about their own property because initially colored men with property could vote. This is like in, from the 1800s up until 1940s. So they eventually got, their vote got taken away by the 1940s. Then there's like people who, because of their profession, they're like teachers. There's this group called the TLSA, the Teachers League of South Africa. They combine ideas from Trotsky and how they organize themselves politically with the fact that they are trying to protect their jobs. You know, and they want to have social events. They want demanding rights but they're demanding it as colored. So people basically constructed their own identity. And of course, there's, there's changes in how that identity evolves at the time. By the 1950s, when the ANC in South Africa adopts like a mass struggle model, the so-called defiance campaign, the ANC organized people in the following way. The African National Congress for Africans, the Congress of Democrats, which are mostly communist supporters who are white, the South African Indian Congress, and the Colored People's Congress. So it's even the ANC that plays this game. The ANC, up until 1969, says that nobody else can be a member 
accept Africans in the ANC. You can be a member from Contouwe-Sizwe, the armed wing of the ANC, but not the ANC. So in 1969, that's when they say all these other people can become members. So a lot of colored people are like, the ANC doesn't accept me, so I'm joining the PAC or whatever. It's only Steve Biko that transformed that definition of like, who's black? Like yeah. he, he flips that. And so a new generation of people begin to identify themselves as black. And I think that leads to what's called the UDF, United Democratic Front, which is a sort of leftist populist movement in which people spend less time worrying about whether they're black or not. And they just care about like housing, healthcare, political rights, trade union rights. Then the ANC comes out of exile, Mandela comes out of prison, now they're trying to like win elections. They notice that the National Party's propaganda of scaring colored people against Africans is kind of working. So the ANC also again begins to talk colored. The ANC says we must put up a colored person to run as the premier for the Western Cape. There's also Africans living there, like 20%, or at that point maybe 20, 25%. I think now it's more like almost 40% or 30, 30 something percent. There's also a white population that's something like in the 20s. I mean, colors made up like the rump of it, like, you know, 60 or something percent. But the ANC also begins to like, okay, if we want to win, we're playing numbers games. We talk about colors. I'm saying like the National Party, it's a given. They're doing a lot of ideological work to make people realize they are colors by funding cultural things like Klopse, Nachtruppe, which are people singing at Christmas time at night with the little fezzes on. So they've got a government ministry that funds that. So the National Party, they started colored affairs. They probably did that in Namibia too. You know, like they start like, you send people to go to like segregated schools for coloreds only. You have day hospitals for inside a colored neighborhood for coloreds only. You create kind of professions in which you reserve jobs for coloreds, teachers, nurses, that are serving coloreds. Mm -hmm. So there's like a whole history in which the apartheid state actively made this happen. Like, and I'm not just talking on like promoting it, but create structures for it. So the fact that people are, be, are thinking of themselves as colored, I, I'm not going to blame them. There's a whole infrastructure for it. I mean, the way they live, the way the residential segregation, etc., all of that was, was being made possible now. And I'm sort of suggesting to you that on top of that, for some strange reason, the people resisting apartheid also sometimes, and I'm, they are not as bad as apartheid in making this construction happen, but I think they also don't help things by playing it up. You know what I'm saying? They play, and they play up and other identities too, Zulu, this one, that one. Which, by the way, Zulu identity is as old as colored identity. Imagine the middle of the 19th century. 3,000 years. It's not 3,000 years, it's 100. <laughs> exactly, right? So there's all these. Now, I will say this, though, when you say, like, where do these ideas come from? It's also true that in a place like Cape Town, Africans and coloreds are actually interacting all the time. And by this, I mean like on the bus, in the train. Whites are not on the bus in the train. It's coloreds and Africans that are actually working class people, because they're mostly working class, who are rubbing up, right? Secondly, schools, like my sisters teach in, in primary school in Mitchell's Plain, two of them. 90% of the students in that school, in a colored neighborhood, are from Kailicha. So a lot of these like separation in the everyday, it's not, I went to speak at their school. It's not so stark anymore. People, uh, the, the middle class kids who go to the formerly white schools, they create new kinds of friendships. The, the whole Fees Must Fall movement, Roads Must Fall, did a lot of that work where people are beginning to go look at each other and go like, what is this thing called colored? And, you know, like they really, they've done a lot of work. But at the same time, I think it's not like you should like walk around and reject colored. It's there. What can you do? It means I have to tell my dad, sorry, you're calling yourself a colored. I hate you. I mean, I did do that when I was a teenager or something, but like, I didn't say I hate you, but I was, you know, <laughs> now I understand like these things are there, they are constructed.
They came with a whole bunch of like uh, cultural practices, forms of political representation. And I cannot pretend that people are going to act in a particular way. It's bad. I think it's bad politically, which is what I wrote in a heartful piece. But they're there. And we have to understand, if, if we want to like make sure that it doesn't have the kind of political power that it has, then we have to understand it better. Like, where do these things come from? And then who reproduces them? I also think, like, we underestimate, for example, maybe in Namibia, you might find the same thing. The evangelical churches, I think, reproduce a lot of this stuff, again, because they repeat a lot of these WhatsApp and, you know, like those voice notes and people send around memes, which are super racist. A lot of Christians are sharing that stuff. So, like, I feel like the church who claims that they're not involved in any politics, but then you actually hear that they are basically doing a lot of this kind of ideological work. I think it would be interesting to research that, yeah. That was Sean Jacobs of The New School and the Africa as a Country blog, speaking with our contributing editor, Shanice Arlo. You can find Sean on Twitter at underscore Sean Jacobs. Thanks to the African Studies Program at St. Lawrence University for inviting Dr. Jacobs to deliver this year's CLR James Lecture. And a huge thanks to Dr. Jacobs for taking the time to share his knowledge with us on Interweaving. Interweaving is a production of Weave News, weaving the world together, one underreported story at a time. Our engineer is Terry Dubray, and our theme music is provided by Bee Children. For more exciting grassroots media content, find us online at weavenews.org or on social media at Weave News. There you can find out how you can support or join us in our work. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for another episode of Interweaving.